I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi there, and welcome to the show. You're listening to Once Upon a Gene, and I'm your host, Effie Parks. Couple things. First, if you haven't downloaded the Disorder Channel, it is a must-do, a must-see. You can get it on Amazon Fire or a Roku. It's the Disorder Channel. It's free. Brought to you by Daniel DeFabio and Bo Bigelow of the Disorder Channel, the Rare Disease Film Festival. It hosts hundreds of uh, rare disease films and family stories and their newest show, Pain Points, which is a short little comedy, and it is hilarious. The last episode actually features a CTNNB1 mom, Kay Weaver. So please go check it out for a chuckle. Also, Rare Disease Day is coming up. I feel like that's the first thing we all look forward to once it's the new year, and it's so exciting. Many of you I know will be in D.C. for Rare Disease Day proper. I am so excited for you, and I cannot wait to see footage from that. My friend Jill Hawkins and I from FAM177A1, we are hosting an epic cocktail party. It's going to be held at an art gallery here, and we're going to be auctioning off amazing little pieces and other fun little things. And we're raising money for our foundations. It's going to be a fun night. I can't wait to share it with you. I would love to know what your plans are for Rare Disease Day and uh, send them to me. Send them to me on Instagram or Twitter or just email them where, wherever you want to send them. I'd love to kind of figure out where everybody's going to be that day and maybe meet online for a live at some point. Okay, down to the meat of it. Y'all, this man that I'm talking to today, have you ever met those people that like, you could just sit down and listen to for the rest of your life, like tell stories like it doesn't even matter if they're talking about what color they like their coffee and you could just sit there and listen to them. This guy is one of them. And I should have known I would fall in love with him because Stuart Seidman, one of my favorite dads, is the one who introduced me to him. They worked together at Chiesi and he's just such a wonderful human being and an amazing storyteller, and I think you're going to be really, really enthralled by his story. I will connect his website at the end in the show notes. Please go check out his book. It's called Andy and Sophia, Stem Cells, Scientific Miracles, and One Fit Savior. You can find it on Amazon or wherever you get your books. So without further ado, I don't want to tell any of his amazing story to you, but it is full of twists and turns and moving of countries to save his child. So please uh, enjoy my conversation with Andreas Trevino. Hello, Andreas. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Effie. Good to be here. It's such an honor to participate in your podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Oh my gosh. Doesn't that just make everybody smile listening to his voice already? I had the honor of meeting Andreas at the Global Genes Patient Advocacy Summit, although I had known about him for quite a while. 
He's uh, friends with Stuart Seidman, who we've heard lots of his family members on the show. Stuart works at Chiesi, and he's a dad to three kids, one of which who is Ben, who died of San Filippo syndrome several years ago now. And Stuart told me about you because Stuart was doing this project of helping people at his company tell their stories, right? And you and him teamed up, you master dads, to <laughs> teach to teach people uh, how and why to tell their stories. So that's how I got connected to this wonderful human that you're going to meet now. And I'm just so thrilled that you're here. And I can't wait to share our conversation with our friends. Well, thank you. Yes, it was uh, such a big honor and pleasure to meet you in person at uh, Global Genes. And yeah, Stuart and I call ourselves uh, the rare dads and we're, we're good friends. We work together. But we both uh, believe in the power of stories because we know that well-told stories have the capacity of not only creating empathy, but they can create change and they can create uh, compassion and they can move people to, to do something. So that's why uh, stories are, are so important and uh, so happy to be here and with the opportunity to share our rare disease uh, journey which I was telling you before, when, when we lived through our rare disease journey, there was no Facebook, there were no podcasts, there, were, there was obviously the internet back in 2000, and there was only websites, but uh, all of these amazing tools were not available. So I'm so happy to be here and uh, sharing the story through, through your podcast. It's so exciting. I couldn't agree more with you about stories creating empathy and also turning it into hope and action. I've seen that. I've felt that. I watch it every day uh, when I talk to someone. So it's so exciting to me. It is what invigorates everything that I do here on the podcast and even being Ford's mom. So I love that. Um, and I love that two of my favorite dads in the whole world now are such a mighty team and doing that and helping others to tell their stories. So Andres, can you give us the beginning of that story? Tell us about your family and your two little kiddos. Well, big kiddos now. <laughs> they're big, yes. <laughs> uh, so uh, Andy, Andy and Sophia, they're the reason why I uh, started in, in advocacy. Andy was born with a condition known as uh, Nemo. And this is even before the Nemo, the Finding Nemo movie came out. Uh, <laughs> Andy was born back in... 1999, and he was uh, actually born in Mexico City. I was born and raised in Mexico City. 48 hours after birth, he developed life-threatening infection. And after that, things really went wrong. So the sad part is that uh, doctors in Mexico couldn't really tell us what was happening. So the infections kept uh, kept coming in and uh, there were very difficult types of, uh, of infections. So nowadays after the pandemic, it's, it's easier to explain the, the condition that Andy had because of course during the pandemic, we were all looking for immunity versus uh, one virus, right? Versus uh, COVID. And we know everything that this virus did to, to uh, communities to countries to the economy to and the devastation that that it uh, brought and and sadly the loss of life so in andy's case you would have to multiply that by 
at least 2,000, which is the number of pathogens that are known to affect humans. So these are all the virus, all the bacteria and fungi out there. And he didn't have the adequate tools in his immune system to fight them. So that's why he, he had all of those uh, infections. And the only way to get rid of those bugs was with IV uh, antibiotics. And of course, every infection involves, as we know, pain and discomfort and nauseous. And, and he went through all of that. So if, if, uh, if you ask uh, my wife and I, and I'm sure it's the same for you, Effie, we feel it's this is like extreme parenting or extreme parenthood where you know there's people that do extreme sports that require uh, an, an incredible incredible amount of dexterity to to perform they're, they're really experts this is what we we got to go through we got to be experts in living in the hospital for almost a thousand days uh, with Andy dealing with uh, infections. And his infections range from meningitis, which is, of course, infection of the central nervous system, uh, infections of his bones, infections of his GI tract, so stomach infections, eye infections, skin infections. And every infection was like falling off a cliff. So we fell off a cliff uh, multiple times. And the way we found a solution or the way we found a hopeful solution was actually to immigrate. It was our last resort, and this is back in September 2000, to move to Boston, uh, directly flying uh, via a commercial flight. And he already had uh, infusion pumps and uh, he was having uh, parental nutrition, which is uh, nutrition through the veins because he couldn't eat because of the bad GI infections. But we managed to grab a plane, fly to Boston, arrive directly to the emergency room at Boston Children's Hospital. And somehow we felt safe the moment we arrived into the emergency room at Boston Children's. It was it was uh, incredible. What about it felt safe? Was it just that obviously there might have been different healthcare opportunities for you being at Boston Children's, one of the best children's hospitals in the world from Mexico City? Can you pinpoint the feeling of why you felt like Andy was going to be taken care of? Yeah, I think... The, the reason there is, and, and the most important component was that everybody cared and they cared in such a way that we knew that we were going to be able to find somehow a, a solution. So we came in and he already had a, a G-tube. Uh, in his stomach, which is uh, it's, it's something crazy when as a dad, you need to decide if they can, if you allow a surgeon to actually perform a hole in the stomach of your son so that he can receive nutrients. Well, at the time he had a G-tube and when we saw the care of the nurses at Boston Children's, what they were changing the old G-tube to uh, what is called a Mickey button, which is uh, much simpler to, to manage. And the way they cared for it, we sort of said, wow, they really know what they're doing. It's, it's <laughs> incredible. So I think we felt safe because of the level of care that Boston Children's Hospital offered to us. So we came here as actually immigrants without, uh, we were here as tourists. 
and we were looking for solutions. And we were very fortunate after a couple of months to be able to meet uh, an amazing group of immunologists who had some clues and they were able to pinpoint the exact genetic variant that was cas uh, causing this immune system to, to dysfunction. So the contrast here was very apparent because back in Mexico, we were told the actual diagnosis that I got from, from one of the doctors was that Andy had the diagnosis of bad luck. So of course, of course you, wouldn't, you wouldn't take that as, as an answer. And they would explain one infection after the other one saying, well, he had bad luck and this is why he had this other infection. And then because of bad luck, he had this other infection. So that was actually a part of the reason we decided to, to come to Boston Children's as a last resort and start looking for real answers. Man, I'm so glad you were able to do that. That's obviously not something that everyone can do. And bringing a sick kid too on a plane into another country that, that had to be so hopeful and also so terrifying at the same time. So thankfully, this was before the September 2001 terrorist attack. So at the time, you were able to travel with infusion pumps. We, we did travel with infusion pumps in, in a commercial flight. So it was definitely easier to, to travel. Nowadays, of course, you would need more. It would be more difficult because uh, of all the restrictions. But yeah, definitely, we, we just arrived here with uh, one piece of luggage, a stroller, my wife, Andy, and, and myself. And, and we lived at Boston Children's for we basically lived there and uh, we got to understand that it's better for you to become friends with the cleaning people because they know the secrets and and yeah we got to know the hospital we got to know all the families there and uh, listen to the stories and just trying to to find some some answers so tell us about that tell us about the thousand days that he was admitted and how little Sophia came back on board. Yes, yeah, so after we found that uh, Andy had this genetic variant, we had uh, three options. And this was an, an amazing immunologist. His name is Jordan Orange, who, who came to our hospital room and he was dealing with another infection. And he said, Mr. Trevino, Mrs. Trevino, medicine is always about options. And uh, the options for you are three. Option number one is we keep Andy on strong medications, antibiotics, antivirals, gamma globulins. But we know those medications can only go so far because this genetic variant is not allowing his immune system to work properly. Option number two is you take out the defective cells, you try to fix them, and then you put, it, put them back. So this is gene therapy. Now, remember, this is uh, back in the year 2001. So gene therapy had been tried, but the, the viral vectors that they were using are the ones that had caused, uh, unfortunately, had caused uh, cancer in some of the trials, basically, that they did in the UK. So sadly for us, gene therapy was not an option. So taking the cells, fixing them, and putting them back was not an option. Option number three, was replacing the defective cells. Now, in order to replace the defective cells, you would go and try to find a donor, but the important variable there is compatibility. If we found that compatible donor, the success rate of the procedure would be 90% or, or better. 
without compatible cells, it dropped to 30%. And so for stem cell bone marrow transplantation, you can go out for to the bone marrow registry and try to look for uh, compatible individuals. Now, my wife and I, our ancestry is uh, from Spain and some from Ireland and from Mexico. Sadly, we couldn't find anyone compatible in the bone marrow registry. So it was Dr. Jordan Orange who also told us, he said, well, Mr. Trevino, Mrs. Trevino, the option for you is to have another baby. And so we turned to each other and said, well, what? He said, yes, so you have another baby. And after birth, we use the umbilical cord stem cells to cure Andy and replace those defective cells. So this is known as uh, pre-implantation genetic testing. And at the time, it had only been done once uh, for a condition called diamond black fan anemia. And the family had been successful, and it was all over the news. And I think it's their name. Actually, we had the opportunity to meet them once, the Nash family. And so when my wife heard that, of course, she said, we're not only going to have one baby, we're going to have twins. <laughs> which uh, which was uh, not that simple because we found that uh, Anna Paulina, my wife, is a carrier. So this is uh, what is known as an X-linked condition, uh, which means that uh, my wife is a carrier. She's not affected, but all of our sons have the risk of uh, being uh, born with Nemo. So this is when we embarked in the in vitro fertilization and, and pre-implantation genetic testing adventure, which uh, I didn't know anything about in vitro fertilization and all of that. And on top of that, so my wife and I were both raised Catholic and the Catholic Church, of course, was completely opposed to what we were trying to do. So that's another story. It's that controversy. Uh, also turned out to be interesting. Well, I'm going to need to know that story on another another conversation because I thought of that like almost immediately because you're you're choosing right at that point, like you have all of these eggs or embryos and then you just you check them all and you decide which ones are viable or not. Exactly. Or which which ones are compatible? Because, for example, in our case, out of 36 embryos only or blastocytes, which, which are fertilized eggs, uh, only two of them turn out to be compatible and without the Nemo va uh, variant. So, and I'm happy to share with you quickly what, so what we did is we we talked to a priest who's a friend of the family back, back in Mexico. The priest knew about the story. He knew about Andy and all the days of hospitalization, his fight for life and everything he had been going through. So his name is Padre Tonio. Padre Antonio went to the Archbishop of uh, Mexico and told him the story. The Archbishop of Mexico went actually went to the Vatican. The Vatican has an office which is called the Office for the Doctrine of the Faith. And at that time, interestingly enough, the prefect of that office was no other than Joseph Ratzinger, who later became came Pope Benedict. And so they came with the story and, and, and came back with two guidelines for the family. The first guideline was that the family had to fight to protect life. And of course, that's what we were doing on a daily basis, all the hospitalizations and fighting for infections without adequate tools. He was fighting for his life. And then guideline number two 
they called it the lesser of two evils principle. So if you're faced with two bad things, you go with the thing that is not as bad as the other one. And of course, we thought that an option to, to replace those defective cells and offer him a chance for life would be better than doing anything. So those were the two guidelines. We did ask for those uh, guidelines in writing, and we didn't hear back. <laughs> <laughs> However, we did receive a written blessing from Pope uh, John Paul II, which we keep. And that, that was, of course, for us good enough. And, and to tell you the truth, we would have done it anyways, because this was an option that, that we had to try. And you know, I'm sure, Effie, that uh, whenever you see a smile from them or, or whenever you see a positive sign of communication, it just... You just have to keep going. Oh my gosh, that's such a beautiful story. And yes, I think we can all resonate with that sparkle, right? That we see, especially when it's mirrored back, like when you can tell your child knows what you're saying and like understands where you're both at. Like it's just such a magical moment of silent communication and it's full of hope. I agree. It's a very, it's a magical moment, and uh, it, I think that magical moment shows the resiliency that that the, these kids have, and that you just have to keep going. That that spark or, or that magical moment is what 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 told us we have to we have to keep trying and keep uh, looking at those variables, and somehow they're gonna become positive, and and the solution will be here. So, for example, every time, and Andy had so many x-rays because, of course, with every infection, they wanted to check and so many hundreds of x-rays. Every time he had an x-ray, he, he, we told him that it was photos and that he had to smile. So, with <laughs> every x-ray, now we didn't have to tell him, but his big smile, even if he was in pain because of a bad infection, the big smile during the x-ray was always there. So yeah, that's that's what kept us going. Oh my gosh, I'm going to start doing that with Ford. That is the best. Because <laughs> <laughs> right now it's still a very terrifying and scary moment for him. But I'm going to tell him it's a picture. Oh it's my gosh. It's a photo. He, he, yeah, he has to, <laughs> has to smile for sure. You know, I'm not sure many families who are dealing with such a huge and terrifying diagnosis and such a sick child who left their country to go get help could find the ways to enhance their days with joy in the worst time of their life. And it seems like that almost came naturally to you and your wife to kind of, I don't know, find the bright spots. Do you feel like when you look back at those moments or those thousand days impatient that there are happier stories than not? And were you seeking them out or were you kind of just already like that? I think they, they happen because you, you are there caring, especially if you're surrounded by the, the level of care that we experienced, this, this just happens uh, naturally. So uh, I can tell you many, many Pediatric hospital, children's hospitals have the the clown unit. Boston has Boston Children's has a clown unit, and it was funny because at first Andy was completely terrified of the clowns. He thought that well, why is 
this doctor dressed up and, and wearing makeup when they're su supposed to treat me. So he didn't understand at first, but then when he understood there were, we had so much fun with them and, and we did so, so many fun things at, at the hospital. There's, and there's some, so many things you could use. Another example I have is every unit has a cart where you can get all your bed sheets and pillows and everything. So we would get an, uh, a good number of bed sheets and then hang them from the from the ceiling of the of the room and create. This was as if, as if we were in in a safari, and we would create the safari day, and everybody would have to just follow the the idea that we're in the safari and uh, just just trying to to find the fun fun aspect of the of the situation. But then of course we had the security team come by to tell us that it was a fire hazard and we had to. <laughs> bring it down but uh well that's okay you could just flood the room at that point you know how exactly, to do that exactly yeah <laughs> there's actually another story that you'll find uh funny which is i told you before there was no facebook there was no actually had to connect a modem which was uh, a box that you connected to your computer and the telephone line in order to get some internet access uh, yeah i know what a modem is <laughs> so <laughs> hospitals didn't have wi-fi that, that, that was uh, for sure. And the way we kept family and friends informed about Andy's situation was through, I, I used my computer and it, they were not called blogs, but they were just like, uh, I put on sort, sort of what happened the day before. And one day I set up the equipment, I uh, connect the modem, we had a, a video camera, which was very big size of uh, very big, type of equipment because it's not like the ones you have today which are incorporated to the laptop and then the laptop so there was the modem the the video camera and the laptop and so it was at night and I forgot to to remove the equipment from the from the crib and uh, normally I wouldn't stay if, if Andy was okay I wouldn't stay and sleep at the room I would go to the playroom because it was more comfortable there as opposed to the couch in the room but then I was sleeping at the playroom and uh, in the middle of the night, there was a police officer that that came by and he woke me up and he said, please follow me. So what's happening? And he said, he pointed to the to the camera and the computer, he said, what's this? He said, oh, it's it's this is how I connect with my family in Mexico. And he said, I'm sorry, you have to take it down. Uh, it's not allowed to broadcast images outside of the hospital. <laughs> That's a true story. Oh my gosh. Amazing. I love that you and your wife and Andy just felt so embraced that you were able to take your guard down, you know, and I love that you brought in all of that equipment that looked so ginormous back then. It's hilarious. Oh yeah. Well, we also had to do fundraising, of course. So moving from Mexico City to Boston, Boston is not a, it's a very expensive city. We were living, we were living at the hospital, but we had to pay for the procedure, especially the in vitro fertilization. So we used the website to raise funds and that, that also kept us busy. We sold t-shirts, we sold all sorts of things and shared the story through his website. And that, that's how we learned how to, how to do fundraising and try to keep up with the bills. Well, you're an OG in that. I mean, we didn't have GoFundMe then. We didn't have like all of these nice platforms where people could just easily 
give you money and i mean you would like maybe have big telethons or something on tv and like bake sales but you wouldn't necessarily be able to reach out to people so easily on the internet to get all that done and you were doing it right in the beginning of when it was happening where you had to probably code your own website exactly yes that's why <laughs> i got a call one day from from microsoft they were so interested because i was using one of their tools to to publish this website and well paypal did exist i'm, I'm not that old effie but <laughs> We did, PayPal did exist and we could sell things through the web, but it was not as, as uh, prevalent as it is today. But we did, for, so selling t-shirts and uh, we got someone from Australia to buy a t-shirt. The problem was how to send it there, ship it, and then they ship back uh, Australian dollars. I actually still have the Australian dollars, just <laughs> oh, that's awesome. kept them. But uh, yeah, it's by sharing those stories. We started the, the podcast with the importance of storytelling. It was by sharing our story and, and letting everybody know what we were going through that they felt inclined to, to, to do something about it. We found one day that if you actually auction a disease, you, you, you're able to, to do fundraising, which was surprising for me. We said, what What would happen if we auction one of Andy's infections via eBay? Let's try it out. So Andy was dealing with a cytomegalovirus infection that day. And I log on to eBay and I said, auction Andy's CMV infection. And uh, I explained his condition. And people started to bid via eBay to win Andy's cytomegalovirus infection. What? It was crazy. So this individual in Houston, Texas, paid $600 for Andy's CMB infection uh, when when the auction ended. And, and so I printed a t-shirt that said, I won Andy's CMB infection <laughs> and sent him a t-shirt. But uh, we really found uh, fun ways to, to raise funds. Uh, I think that is such an amazing idea, and it should probably be awoken again. So <laughs> anyone listening, go, go put something on eBay and start a bidding war. I love that idea. It works. <laughs> okay, well, so then Sophia's born, and she's a match. Which, what are the odds that she would have been a match? High, but not for sure, correct? Oh, well... First of all, the chances for in vitro and, and pre-implantation genetic testing were very, very low. But this was the summer of, of 2003 when we found that we had these two compatible blastocysts. So you get a call from the fertility center and then they told us there's two fertilized eggs that, that show compatibility. So we go in the next day and then they transfer those cells and... And then you pray. This is this is at the point where medicine still doesn't have all the detailed explanation of how that happens. So this is where the miracle happens that those cells decide to implant and my wife uh, became pregnant, which was incredible. And of course, from the summer of 2003 until March 14, 2004, Everybody knew what we were what we were doing. We received some 
we received some uh, talking about the controversy, some proposals to for interviews. Of course, we we declined because we we were focused on finding a solution for Andy. Someone actually proposed having cameras when Sophia during Sophia's birth. Of course, we said no, but. The chances were low for, for in vitro and pre-implantation genetic testing, but we knew that uh, she, she was compatible. So March 14, 2004, this is the best day of my life. She, the sound that came out when, when she cried the first time is the best sound I've heard ever. We didn't even notice when the doctor was pinching the umbilical cord to extract the blood, which is rich on stem cells. She was so beautiful, red cheeks, the, the best day. And after that, of course, the, the opportunity to have Sophia meet Andy and the relationship that they have is, is so, so incredible. The thing there was that the cells that were gathered from the umbilical cord were actually not enough for transplantation. So we had to wait about an additional uh, nine months so that Sophia was a little older and she could donate an additional amount from her bone marrow. This blood is uh, naturally replaced, but she so she donated an additional amount from her bone marrow and we use both the umbilical cord uh, stem cells and the bone marrow uh, stem cells. In this procedure, which is still a very difficult procedure because it involves chemotherapy and it involves wiping out the defective existing immune system, and of course the hope that the new cells would uh, offer that, uh, that replacement and, fu- and functionality. My friend Katie Stevens, who has been on the show from Team Telomere, her son had a bone marrow transplant and actually went to Boston Children's for it. And I just remember hearing all of the trauma in her story about the immune system that you have to shut down, right? And what that does to their little bodies and how scary it is to even think about anyone getting a germ or getting sick. Were you guys kind of living in that fear too or were you mostly just super focused everything was kind of going as planned to get this procedure done and implanted and you saw brighter days ahead what was that like because there's so much more to a story like this than the step-by-step stuff right of how it goes yeah every transplant is is different i'm gonna start by, by saying that because it's i mean it's a difficult thing you are you're replacing cells from you're replacing cells that are there that are not working with cells that will hopefully offer the the solution and and in order to do that you use deadly chemicals to to get rid of those cells the the sad part is that those deadly chemicals also uh, kill other cells, and so that that was a difficult decision for us to move to move into transplantation. Even though we had the cells, we had done everything to to find Sophia. Everything was ready as a parent to go in and sign that agreement, which tells you that they're basically going to take the life away and then try to bring it back with the new cells. Is some of the most difficult things I ever done. But throughout, throughout my rare disease journey, I've, I've tried to look for signals 
and and the signals uh, have always been important for me. Maybe maybe it's a phrase, maybe it's uh, something that you hold on to. And, and many doctors gave us important phrases like don't shoot from the hip or absence of proof is not a proof of absence, which really ap applies in rare diseases and especially applies in a primary immune deficiency or hope for the best and act for the worst. But these phrases were not actually been enough for us at this point. And there was one night where I was looking at uh, Sophia's name. Sophia, Sophia is uh, written in, in Spanish. It's S-O-F-I-A and then Trevino, T-R-E-V-I-N-O. And I was looking for anagrams just and this is before we signed the agreement for transplantation. And suddenly I noticed that with the exact same letters of Sophia's name, Sophia Trevino, you get three other words, which are one fit savior. And the moment I saw that, I, I, I knew it was sort of a signal. And we said, this is it. We're going to move forward. It's going to work. One fit savior. It means this cells will help Andy replace his immune system and it's going to work. So that anagram, of course, we love, we love the anagram, uh, one fit savior. And that is what actually uh, moved us to, to transplantation, which again is a very difficult procedure. It's not a it's not a sprint. It's definitely a marathon type of uh, procedure. Okay, I feel like I'm kind of a psychic because <laughs> when I was looking at the cover of your book the other day, I was thinking, I bet Sophia means something. Not, I don't know why, but she's obviously the child that was born to help save their son and to obviously bring so much more light into their life. But I bet they chose the name Sophia for a reason, but you didn't, but you found out why. I love that story. And I love that look for the signals kind of mantra. And I think that so many of us can really understand that deeply, even if it's just finding out the signals of when we don't feel good in a room or when we don't feel a connection with a certain doctor or therapist, but to always use those as data and to kind of get to know them better, right? Like our gut instincts and make decisions from that. For sure. You know, I think about you going through all of this and living in the hospital and the decades now that have gone by and how crisp your memory is to some of these situations. Whereas I feel like even for me, some of these things are completely absent because I don't know if I was so traumatized in the moment or if... You know, I was just so overwhelmed in general that some things just like could, didn't have room. How do you think that you have kept a hold of so many of these memories and the names of these people who've been alongside this story of yours? Well, I think I can tell you that they will stay with us forever. That That is for sure. And I've heard from many of them that that it's mutual. When you live through this type of uh, experiences, when you live through the rare experiences and find other, others who care, these are the type of things that you take with you uh, forever. I tell you that as a parent. On the other side, I have, I have good news for you, which is recently we, well, not that recent, but some, 
Actually, some years ago, we were invited to participate in a documentary. And in this documentary, of course, we had all the cameras, a very professional setup here at our home. And uh, it was Santa Paulina and myself sharing the story. But then the, the, the movie director was very interested in going to Andy and Sofia, of course, to get their part of the story. And they switched from the living room to to the kitchen table and they set up the cameras, the lights, they put the microphones and the movie director with excitement turns to Andy and Sophia and says, okay, Andy, Sophia, tell me, what do you remember? There was a moment of silence. They each turned to look at each other and they respond, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! Which was incredible. It was <laughs> his success. For I mean, he didn't remember the chemotherapy pain. He didn't remember anything, which is great. As a parent, it's the best thing that can happen to you. He's not gonna remember. Of course, the movie director was not happy, but. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's so perfect. Anything of normalcy that you could get out of that is just so perfect. I love that. Yeah. Those darn kids. <laughs> so tell us about Andy and Sophia now. Andy is uh, 23. He's graduating college in December, which is just incredible. Every moment is, is uh, a blessing, obviously, after we what we lived through. And, and yeah, that, that's why I decided to dedicate uh, my professional career in, in helping others. But Andy graduating college... He's studying communications. Sophia started college recently. He actually decided to go to your side of the country. He's in, she's in Oregon uh, and uh, she started her college life there. She might move back to, to the East Coast, we'll see, but she's doing, she's doing well. And Andy and Sophia have, have a very special bond. It's actually view take blood out of Andy, it's exactly the same blood as Sophia because it's Sophia's stem cells that are living in Andy's bone marrow, creating all the blood cells. And so they have that special bond. Actually, if you take one of Andy's blood cells, they're actually female cells, if you, if you want to look uh, look that up because it's uh, Sophia's cells in his bone marrow. So they have that bond and, and they have, but like every other sibling, they, they would fight when they were little. But there was one day which was very funny because uh, they were fighting and then Sophia would turn to Andy and said, hey, remember, you don't need to do that because I saved your life. <laughs> I mean, I hope she uses that as often as she needs to. Yeah, she's, I mean, <laughs> she has the right to do that. But then Andy turns back and the response was as equally powerful, which he said, oh yeah, well, thanks to me, mom and dad found you. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, coming from a large family, like this is, they are my people. This is all <laughs> they do to each other. They just torture each other to the ends of the earth. In love. <laughs> exactly. And we have a third third daughter, Tanya. She's 13 and, uh, and she's also a blessing. So we have three kids. You're so lucky. So tell me about your decision to work 
in the field, like at Chiesi. Tell me how you met Stuart and perhaps the relationship that blossomed from two rare dads who just have a special air about them in general. I'd love to know about that. Stuart and I met be, uh, thanks to uh, a researcher at Boston Children's, Dr. Len Son, who's an amazing researcher. Dr. Son knew that I was uh, working at a rare disease uh, biotech company, and, and he introduced us. And from the moment we met, we, we just bonded as rare dads. And recently, we had, we had the opportunity to work together at uh, Kiesi rare diseases, and it's been incredible because we get to do what we like. We get to help others that are going through similar situations that that we lived, and hopefully to inspire and to bring solutions. And we find that the company we work for, which is a, a family-owned company, that uh, that they also really care, and they care in the right way. It's a benefit corporation, which means that. Uh, they're certi certified to use business as a force for good. So that really makes our job easier as we interact with advocates and advocacy groups because uh, it's easier to show that that the company cares. So it's been a great, every, every day to, to go to work with, with Stuart, it's been a great opportunity and uh, a great way to, to help others, which is uh, what I like to do initially, my, my professional career was in telecommunications, but after what we lived with Andy, it, it didn't really make sense for me to go back to, to telecommunications. It was a, a family-owned business as well, because I, I didn't see, I was not helping individuals go through this uh, very difficult type of, of situations when, where you're faced with a, with a rare disease. And so that's why I, I like what I do. Now, before I, before I joined uh, the, the biopharmaceutical companies, I actually worked for Boston Children's Hospital as, as a fundraiser. And I decided to do that, of course, to thank, thank the institution for helping us find this, this solution. But also I saw that uh, philanthropy in the Latino uh, community was not present at Boston Children's Hospital, so I wanted to change that because I, I, I knew that the Latino community was philanthropic, but it was just that the stories that they were receiving were not the ones that uh, connected with, with that community. So we created an initiative which is called Milagros para Niños, which stands for Miracles for Kids where we started sharing stories in Spanish. We started sharing stories of kids, which actually at the time there were 20% of the patient population at children's were Spanish speaking kids. And there was no philanthropic uh, sort of uh, participation from the community. So by sharing their stories, by letting them know that they could be a part of, of, of uh, Boston children's by participating, volunteering, donating, doing something for, for the hospital, uh, that they could also uh, bring change. And so this initiative has raised, my goal at first was to raise 5 billion because if I gathered all the bills that I had from children's, that was about the, <laughs> that was about the amount that, that was spent. 
but now I'm happy to say that the initiative has surpassed 15 million and it's an ongoing initiative with uh, Latino leaders here here in, in New England and also some international philanthropists from Latin America that have actually donated uh, to Boston Children's to, to help Latino kids and, and the community. Yeah, philanthropy is also a very important component in, in rare diseases and and it's something that, that I enjoy doing as well. Isn't it just otherworldly where life takes you after you have a kid like ours? It's just incredible to see the span of someone's life after it has been shook. It's incredible, isn't it? Who would have <laughs> thought that... <laughs> You would end up with a, with a podcast and you would end up, uh, yeah, it's, and I'm thankful because of course I get to meet uh, people like you and uh, so many people in the rare disease community that are so inspiring and, and the more we meet this sort of resilient uh, community, the, the more you want to do to bring solutions. But we didn't even really get to like another one of your many, many gifts, which is your gift of storytelling and being a storyteller before storytelling was so cool <laughs> and that you've been doing this all along. I mean, you speak at Harvard every year for like how long now? Like almost 20 years? No. So the Harvard opportunity, I think it's about 10 years and it's a, it's a highlight for my, for the year when I get invited to talk to medical students and, and my goal there, my purpose by sharing the story is to get them involved in rare diseases, of course, uh, to, to have them look for ways to, to find faster diagnosis and, and better cures. And uh, yeah, I've been doing that for ten years, and, re and it's really a highlight when when I get to when I get to do that. And for storytelling, I, I actually don't consider myself a good storyteller because I was just not a good storyteller. But I was looking for some help, and one day I listened to such an incredible advocate sharing her story about uh, mental health that I had to ask her, how did you do it? And she put me in touch with an organization called Living Proof Advocacy. And Tim and John at Living Proof Advocacy have uh, crafted a way in which you can share a story that will not only make people have goosebumps, but also immediately want to do something about it and, and help. And it's a way to share a story where you craft a story, you practice a story, you make it so that uh, people can connect to the story and uh, find ways to, to help. This is what we use when, when we interview someone and, and we're privileged to, to share their stories. Uh, we sort of give them coaching so that they can go through and, and uh, make people move and turn those stories into action. Yes. I'm so glad you brought them up. I got a chance to talk to Timothy and John the other day. Thanks to you and Stuart from livingproofadvocacy.com. Go check them out. They're basically living my dream job, but I'm so excited to learn from them, especially after watching what you and Stuart did with some advocates in helping them to craft their story and tell their story to ignite action, right? And inspire hope, whatever you're end goal is for telling your story. It's so beautiful. And I'm so lucky to have been even in the same room as all of you. And I'm looking forward to learning more. 
And I do wonder, like, when you sit down with the people that you're coaching or you're talking about, like, what are kind of your first directives? Like, what are the main components that you would tell an advocate listening right now who maybe hasn't told their story or who has, but maybe it feels a little disjointed? What would you say to someone who's kind of looking to tell their story for a purpose? So the first step is to, to go to the simple explanation of your story. So think of six words that would explain your story. And, and when I did this, I came up with a huge list of, of six words options. The one that, that I like the most is happiness is meant to be shared. So I use that, sto- that those six words whenever I shared my, my story, when, when I started, when I end my story, that happiness is meant to be shared. But when you start with those six words, it allows you to start from there. And then, and I'm sure you've seen them, there are different types of stories. There's the canned story, which is individuals that are reading and that are, you can see that uh, it's, it's not really coming from, from the heart because they're reading a script and you're really not connecting with the audience because what happens when you're reading is that the audience is tends to analyze what you're reading instead of really getting the the important aspects of the story. Now on the other hand you have on the other hand of the on the other side of the Gantt story you have the raw story. So think of the first time you had to share something very difficult about your very disease journey because you just go through a timeline and it's very emotional and it's uh, and 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 at the end of the day when people hear a raw story, they basically feel bad for you, but but they don't feel compelled to, to doing something. They're just feeling bad. Now in the middle, in the middle of the Gantt story and the raw story is a well-told story. This well-told story has to be crafted. It means you have to select the moments that you think will connect to your audience. You have to select how deep you want to go into those moments so that you can connect in a in a much better way and that is where the audience you feel a connection with the with the audience and you could actually improvise if you practice uh, well enough so that if you feel that you're connecting in one aspect of the story you can go deep and in others maybe you can just mention part of the story which uh, at, the, at that time wouldn't be that important but this practice story is what, uh, and this is not read, this is a type of story that uh, it comes from the moments that you have already selected and you have already chosen which words you're going to use depending on your audience. So the fact is that positive stories are the ones that have a better chance of moving people. So I choose to share the positive story because I want others to find hope. I 100% feel you there. I'm definitely not on the level that you're at, but th- that is so real what you get out of it. Someone asked me the other day, they were like, Effie, how do you handle listening to all of these terrible, sad, devastating stories? And my answer is what I find when I'm listening to those stories are those bright spots, you know, where they learned something, where they 
took action, where they had hope, how much stronger their family got, whatever it is, like I can see all of the bad stuff swirling around and I understand it and I'm not ignoring it, but I'm also seeing what's born of it. And I think that's how I can listen to these stories every single day and not feel fatigued or burnt out or saddened by them because there's so much regrowth in so many ways when someone tells their story. Happiness is meant to be shared. Thank you for sharing any of your time with me. I know Stuart is probably a very serious boss and he's not searching for dog gifs right now and needs you to get back to the office. <laughs> um, but it was such an honor to meet you and speak with you. And I'm so grateful to have you in my orbit at all. I just, I adore you. I could listen to you for a hundred years. And I thank you so much for, for coming on the show today and sharing a little bit and hopefully many times to come. Thank you, Effie. The, the privilege is mine. And I really feel that, that what you're doing is such an important step forward for the rare disease community. All the, the stories that you share really provide an incredible tool to find hope. I thank you for that and please keep doing what you're doing and uh, keep inspiring us because uh, you do a great work. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story, or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate you all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.